0: Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month. Our mentor this month is Chris Malone. Chris recently spoke at the Crown Council annual event. He has a long history of success working with leading organizations like Coca-Cola, the MBA, and Procter & Gamble. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Human Brand. We were so impressed with his presentation that we decided to release it as a Crown Council Mentor of the Month. You'll love his message about how, in this digital age, we can put a human face on your practice to show everyone in your community what it is you really care about. So please now listen to Chris Malone from the Crown Council's 21st Annual Event in Salt Lake City as he talks about the most important part of your brand, the human brain.
1: So here we are. We are in the digital age of dentistry. How does that feel? Does it feel like the perfect world we were promised it would be? I mean, just think of all the stuff that we've got, right? We've got our digital x-rays. Don't have to deal with the film anymore. We've got online claims and statements. Patients can make their appointments online, not to mention all kinds of in-office CAD CAM, and the list goes on, right? But then think about all the things the patients have, right? Thanks to Google, they know everything that we know about dentistry, right? (laughs) They can rate doctors and dentists online with things like ZocDoc. They can search and choose a dentist pretty much in the same way they buy a handbag or a hotel room. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? Well, it makes you wonder if we've got all this digital technology, We've got all this data. Why is it then, in almost every industry, including dentistry, that it seems like there's more price pressure than ever before? We're struggling with costs. There's a lot of practice consolidation. And that relationship between the dentist and the patient just doesn't seem the same way it used to be. What's up with that? But don't worry, every year there's some new technology that's gonna solve it for us, right? Whether it's digital marketing campaigns, or social media, or dental dollar loyalty programs, that'll solve it for us. Does it ever feel like a moving target, just about to get our hands on it and then something shifts? Well, I've got some good news for you. The real keys to building a culture of success and strong patient relationships and steady growth that doesn't rely on price is not a moving target it never changes it's hardwired into all of us by evolution and if we simply can understand it embrace it and align our practice and our decisions with it it can deliver consistent growth strong relationships growth and profitability and the culture of success that you're looking for the digital technology simply makes it powerful more so than ever before if we just know how to use it and so by the time we finish here today, that's exactly what you should have. But To explain how all that works, I first need to tell you a story about where it came from. Back in December of 1982, Mary Lou DiNallo worked as a frame attendant at New Jersey Bell at their central switching office in Rochelle Park, New Jersey. The tools of her trade were a soldering iron and a telephone handset. It was back in the day when they hooked up a new telephone line, someone actually had to solder a copper wire onto a frame and then test it to make sure that it worked. Now, it wasn't glamorous work and it didn't pay very well, but it offered benefits and a pension, which was important to Mary Lou because she was a single mother struggling to support a teenage son and daughter. And so as the holidays approached, Mary Lou started to think about ways she could make Christmas morning a little bit more special for her kids. And so she decided to volunteer to work some overtime hours in the training facility in Hackensack. Now, as it turns out, the training facility in Hackensack was not in the greatest area. In fact, one of her colleagues had actually been mugged walking down the alley to the parking lot behind the building just a few weeks before. But again, she was committed to making Christmas more special that year, and so she set aside her fears and headed for Hackensack after her shift in Rochelle Park. The first night was smooth sailing, she enjoyed meeting new people, shared lots of great experiences, and driving home, she even started to make a mental list of the gifts she might be able to afford if she just worked a few more hours. The second night, however, was entirely different. As she entered the alley, she noticed there were two men standing in the shadows at the other end. Now, this made her nervous, but she decided, I'll just avoid eye contact, and I should be able to make it to my car the same way as I had the night before.
0: About halfway down the
1: alley, she noticed the two men had entered it and were walking very quickly towards her. And for reasons she couldn't explain, she felt certain they were going to attack her. Her plan to avoid eye contact went right out the window. She became focused on their faces, trying to make out their shape and expression. And then when the men were about 10 feet away from her, she felt a scream welling up from inside her. And then her full-throttle brain recognized something familiar. And before she had a moment to think, the words, Hi, Frank, came out of her mouth. And the two men stopped dead in their tracks, startled by both the tonk and tone of her words. Now, Frank Passarella had been a pretty nice kid when he was younger. Mary Lou actually knew his mother, Jean. He'd gone to school with her son, Stephen. But in high school, he developed a drug habit. And after graduation without a job, he began to steal to support that habit. He'd been arrested several times, and it had gotten so bad, his parents actually had to put a deadbolt lock on their bedroom door so he wouldn't sell any more of their valuables. Now, Frank was stunned and embarrassed and managed some other words, Hi, Mrs. DiNallo, before he and his would-be partner in crime shuffled by. And Mary Lou made it to her car with her heart pounding in her chest all the way home, feeling certain that if she'd not recognized Frank, wouldn't have been the happy holiday she wanted for her kids. So what has become of Mary Lou and how do we know all of this? Well, in fact, Mary Lou Dinalo is my mother-in-law and I've been hearing this story every year in vivid detail for 23 years. (laughs) It seems like the details get more vivid every year. But what is it about a story like this that we can all relate to? Whether it's something that's happened to us or someone that we care about, what is it about our psychology that allows us to navigate through these threatening situations very quickly and very accurately with very little information? Well, it turns out the answer to that question actually lies deep in our past because like primitive humans tens of thousands of years ago, Mary Lou had to make two kinds of decisions, very quickly and very accurately with very little information. First, she needed to determine what were the intentions of those two men at the end of the alley. Were they friends or foes? Going to help her or hurt her? Give something to her or take something from her? Or said another way, what degree of warmth could she pick up about their intentions toward her? And then given what she thought their intentions were, what ability did they have to carry out those intentions? Were they strong or weak, fast or slow, foolish or intelligent? Or what degree of competence did they have? And it turns out that in the original game of Survivor, tens of thousands of years ago, these are the most important decisions humans made every day. Not only when they came upon strangers in unfamiliar situations, but frankly, in their daily interactions with people in their tribe, in their family, in their community, because it allowed them to know who they could trust and allowed them to build relationships that allowed them to stay in the tribe. And frankly, that was a life and death situation, right? Unlike what we see on TV, if you got kicked out of the tribe 10,000 years ago, you didn't get to go to Redemption Island, right? More likely, you're going to be dead within a few weeks because we rely on each other so much for food, clothing, shelter, and protection. And so through evolution, humans became hardwired to make these judgments continuously all the time whenever we're interacting with another person. We do it almost without thinking, relying on facial expressions, body language, tone of voice, appearance, and all the senses we have to pick this up. And we're making these judgments continuously every day, guiding us throughout our lives. It turns out social psychologists have been able to show, through research in over 40 countries, these basic warmth and competence perceptions actually drive over 80% of human behavior. So let me explain a little bit how this works. You can think of warmth as kind of a whole category of perceptions that would relate to intentions. Is this person honest? Are they trustworthy? Are they approachable? Are they friendly? Are they warm? Do they have my best interests in mind, or are they only looking out for themselves? And the list could go on of all the perceptions you could put in that category. Competence is lots of the things that you would expect. Knowledge, intelligence, creativity, reliability, resourcefulness, and the list goes on. And it turns out these two basic warmth and competence perceptions actually drive a predictable pattern of emotions, and it's the emotions that actually drive our behavior. So think for a moment about someone you know who's very warm, friendly, approachable, that you trust a great deal, but is also very skilled and capable and reliable at what they do, Well, typically, this causes us to feel pride and admiration. We're drawn to these people. We become loyal to them. But if we flip that around and think of someone that has all the same skill and ability, but is cold and unfriendly, difficult to approach, and we're not sure what their intentions are towards us, this causes us to feel kind of envy and jealousy. We're not sure we can trust them, and behavior that comes from that is kind of grudging cooperation. It could pose a threat to us, but we kind of go along to get along in the near term. On the flip side of things, if we know someone who's very warm and friendly and honest and we trust them a great deal but is really not very reliable, well, we kind of feel pity and sympathy for these folks. They can't really help us. They can't really hurt us. And so as a result, we ignore them, kind of indifferent and neglect. And then, of course, the worst combination of all, if you've got someone who's cold and unfriendly and really not reliable, that just makes us angry. We feel contempt. We reject them and avoid them. And so whether we realize it or not, every day we're making these judgments subconsciously as we interact with people throughout our lives. In fact, it turns out that humans are so hardwired to make these judgments that we do it with people without even knowing them. Let's take a little uh, illustration for example. How many of you know uh, Tiger Woods, right? If I put the name Tiger Woods to you by a show of hands, how many would say they think Tiger Woods is very warm, friendly, honest, and trustworthy? (laughs) All right, not all at once, right? All right, but how many would say he's at least pretty competent, capable, and skilled as a golfer? Yeah, that's what you'd expect, and that's exactly the way the rest of the world sees Tiger Woods. We don't think he's very honest and trustworthy. He's competent and capable, so we kind of grudgingly tolerate him, but we don't really trust him. Let me give you another name. It's an election year. Let me give you a politician. What about the name Vice President Joe Biden? How many of you think he's very warm, friendly, honest, and trustworthy? Well, there's some out there, more than Tiger Woods. But how many of you would say he's very competent, capable, skilled, and effective? Not the same response. And I guess that's what happens with vice presidents, right? They mean well, they can't really get anything done, and so we ignore them. It won't surprise you, perhaps, that someone like Oprah Winfrey is seen as very warm and very competent, She's got a very loyal following, and actually someone like Fidel Castro down in Cuba, not seen as very warm or competent, and we contempt and rejection toward him. And it turns out that we are so hardwired as humans to do this, it's not only people that we judge this way. We see almost everything around us through this lens. So, for instance, there's research been done to show how humans perceive different animals on the basis of warmth and competence. And here's what they find. Upper in the upper right-hand quadrant is where you find your dogs and cats and horses that we love. Down in the lower left is where the rats and snakes and lizards that we detest. The lions and tigers and bears are down with kind of trust, uh, a distrust and envy. And in the upper left-hand quadrant is really the place you don't want to be because that's where the cows and pigs are that get eaten for lunch and dinner, unfortunately. And it goes beyond this, of course. Actually, they've been able to show that actually even computers and websites, whether we realize it or not, we're judging them on the basis of their warmth and competence. We see them as a reflection of the warmth and competence of the people who created them, the people on the other side. So computers as social actors and websites as social actors. And so when I first became exposed to this work back in 2009, I was shocked. I was like, gosh, if there is such a powerful force guiding our behavior, how come I've never heard of it before? And it turns out that just in the last 10 years, it's been recognizes the universal way around the world that all humans perceive, interact, and form relationships with one another. And so I was inspired and said, I think this might be a big impact on how we do business in the world. And so I reached out to one of the world's leading authorities on warmth and competence, Dr. Susan Fisk at Princeton University, and I said, I have a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis that your model not only guides our behavior socially, but also guides our behavior in business and how we build trust and loyalty with our team members and with our patients. She said, well, let's give that a try. And so we spent the next three years conducting research on over 45 companies and brands, asking their customers and employees how they perceive them on the basis of warmth and competence. And here's what we found. Up in the upper right-hand quadrant, we found lots of well-known nonprofit organizations, some of the most respected companies in the world, Johnson & Johnson, Hershey, Coca-Cola, Amazon, and so on. In the lower left-hand side, we find lots of national banks, insurance companies, oil companies and tobacco companies, all the companies we are so frustrated and distrustful of. On the lower right-hand side, we found lots of luxury brands like Mercedes and Rolex and Rolls-Royce. And it's important to point out at this point that this is the perception of the total U.S. adult population. For those people that own a Mercedes, they may not see Mercedes this way, but for most people, that is something that's unapproachable. It's out of reach for them, and as a result, they don't feel it's as warm. And we weren't sure what we found in the upper left-hand quadrant, but actually what we found is this is where lots of government subsidized organizations are perceived. The post office, Amtrak, the Veterans Administration, which are viewed to have perhaps good intentions, but if they had to compete without those subsidies, perhaps would not continue to exist. So we saw the same pattern of warmth and competence perceptions viewing companies and brands as we saw for humans, animals, and everything else that we see around us. And while that was certainly very interesting, what was perhaps more important and more useful is that when we rolled up all of that data and looked at how those perceptions impacted the purchase intent, loyalty, and commitment the customers and employees felt towards those organizations, here's what we found. Over 50% of all that behavior could be explained by four basic human perceptions warm, friendly, competent, and capable. Before we talk about price, quality, reliability, knowledge, all the other competence-related things that we talk about, and I've spent my whole career trying to market and sell in large organizations, it was the perceptions of the people behind those companies and brands that were driving over half of the behavior. And perhaps that's been the missing piece. Perhaps that's why despite we have more loyalty, more data than ever before, we actually have less loyalty than ever before, perhaps we've been missing half the picture, the half of the picture that relates to how we perceive the warmth and competence of the people that we're doing business with. And so I have to tell you, I was really stunned by this because it was counter to so much of what I'd been taught and trained in my career. It suggested that most of what we are taught in business is fundamentally at odds of what it takes for people to trust one another, And I started to think perhaps half of everything that I was taught and trained is either no longer true or perhaps may not have ever been true. And it inspired me to step off of the corporate ladder and say, there's got to be a better way for us to do business. We can have loyalty and trust and commitment without having to drive it with price and all kinds of other tools and technology. The technology is great, but the technology alone is not going to get it done for us. And so I became inspired to share this with others around the world, hoping to make a difference in how they view the world. We were fortunate to have our work published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology in 2012 with response papers from most of the respected academics in the world. And it's been really remarkable that since then, over 75 other papers have been published academically, peer-reviewed journals, people building on, expanding on, and carrying on our work. And so that's been very gratifying. But if you're like me, You've probably seen during the course of your career, it seems that every year there is some new book or some new theory or some new model of how the world is supposed to work or doesn't work. And I certainly have found things like these extremely helpful. But I've often wondered, how do we do all of that stuff? How does it all fit together? Is there any kind of rule of thumb that can guide us through most of what we need to know? Some common thread? Well, for me, that's what warmth and competence has become. It seems to be that underlying human psychology that helps explain why all of those things work and allows us to think of it in a little bit simpler and more practical way that we can tie it all together. Perhaps, though, there's no better way to explain warmth and competence than to tell you an actual story of it in action. It was back in August of 2012. and Teresa Cook lay dying in a hospital bed in Nashua, New Hampshire. She was in the final stage of pancreatic cancer. By her side was her 21-year-old grandson, Brandon. And Brandon was trying to do whatever he could to make his grandmother as comfortable as possible in her final days. And one of the most devastating things about pancreatic cancer is that it causes rapid weight loss and takes away the appetite at exactly the time the body needs strength to fight the tumors. And so Brandon was trying to get his grandmother to eat something but she was resisting. She said, this hospital food is awful. I want no part of it. But Brandon persisted and persisted. And eventually, Teresa said, she said, well, there is one thing. If you could get me my favorite food, I'd give that a try. He said, no problem, grandmother. I'll get right on it. What would you like? She said, I could really go for a bowl of clam chowder and a bread bowl from the Panera Bread Shop. Brandon said, no problem. I'll get right on that. He got on the phone and called up the Panera Bread Shop on Amherst Street in Ashwood and said, I'd like to pick up bowl of clam chowder in her bread bowl this afternoon for takeout. There was a long pause in the line. And then they said, I'm sorry. During the summer, we only make clam chowder on Fridays. Could you give us a call back on Friday? We'll take care of it then. And Brent said, no, you don't understand. You've got to make an exception. My grandmother is very ill. If we don't get some food in her, she may not be with us on Friday. So the manager got on the line, Susan Fortier, and she didn't miss a beat. She said, no problem at all. You come right over and we'll have the clam chowder ready for you when you get here. And she did have it ready. And in addition, she put together a box of cookies for Brandon. She says, there's no charge for any of this. You just let us know how your grandmother's doing. If you need more clam chowder, we'll be here for you. And he did let her know, because Teresa Cook had more clam chowder on Friday and the following Tuesday. And it wasn't until Saturday, August 18th, that Teresa Cook quietly passed away with her family by her side. Clam chowder its a her for perhaps another week. And it was just a bowl of clam chowder, and it was just another week. But for Brandon and his grandmother, it was literally a matter of life and death, one they would never forget. And it turns out there are a lot of other people that would never forget either. Because on that first Tuesday, Brandon sent a little thank you note over to the folks at the Panera Bread Shop, and he sent that thank you note on his Facebook page. And what do you imagine happened next? Within a few days, over 800,000 people around the world had liked that post. Nearly 35,000 had posted comments, and many of them were Panera employees, saying things like, this is why I'm proud to work at Panera. We do things like this in our store every week. Mom's saying, we don't have a Panera in our town, but when we do, we'll be going there. Others saying, this is why our kids will be going to Panera this evening for dinner. So it begs the question, What accounts for this tremendous outpouring of emotion and action? Was the quality of the clam chowder, the speed of the service, location of the store, the price? No, of course not. It wasn't any of those things. It was a genuine, compassionate act of warmth towards another person. And contrary to everything we've been taught in life, we are much more programmed to respond to demonstrations of warmth than competence. Despite that we've been taught that all of our success in life comes only from our competence, the reality is warmth is the dominant driver of our emotions and our behavior. And so despite there's nothing but five lines of text, not so much as a photograph, it moved hundreds of thousands of people. We don't have to think about it. If you felt anything at all when I told that story, you hear it, you feel it, and it moves us. That's warmth and competence at work. So what we can take from this. Stories and research is that people... We're actually the first brands, faces, the first logos. All the branded trade and commerce we've engaged in over the last several thousand years has simply been an adaptation, the way we were wired by evolution to interact and form relationships with one another. And so in fact, we can say every human is a brand and every brand is human. The way our brains perceive, interact, and form loyalty to them is exactly the same. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. For most of human history, commerce between humans was conducted face-to-face. That's where we picked up all of those facial expressions and body language and tone of voice and all of that. we were mutually interdependent relationships, and this worked great for thousands of years. And then a little something called the Industrial Revolution came along and disrupted all of that. Let's go back in time and think about how things were back in the 1850s. Let's take the cobbler, for instance, who for thousands of years has shaped shoes to the individual feet of his customers. Back in those days, they didn't have direct deposit or credit cards. They had to pay with barter and IOUs, and people had to stick together. The cobbler had relationships with his customer, they were on a first name basis. The choices that people made were as much about the relationship they had with the person they were doing business with as it was the product or service they were offering. And frankly, there was a lot of balance in that relationship. If a merchant did wrong by a customer and didn't make it right, pretty much everyone in town would know about it by Sunday church and that person would come under pressure to make it right or be run out of town and risk losing his livelihood. There was a social accountability that ensured equilibrium and balance and commitment among them. Then comes the industrial revolution, mass production, mass distribution, mass communication. The shoes are made in a factory. They're shipped across the country. This was tremendous for economic development, reductions in cost, increased availability, tremendous growth, companies and brands became very large. And along the way, the balance that used to exist, the relationships that used to exist between merchants and their customers really became impractical. You couldn't have a relationship with people on the West Coast if you were making your stuff in Chicago. That's where distributors and intermediaries, retailers and wholesalers came in. And so this notion of relationship with the customer kind of became impractical. To fast forward now to where we are, now do we not only see the people who make the shoes, we don't even see the shoes, right? We buy them online. They show up in a box. We don't like them. We send them back. Along the way, you could say it's almost be the mass dehumanization of commerce between people. But now... After about 150 years, what I would call the middle ages of marketing, something's changing. Thanks to e-commerce, social networks, mobile devices, the whole world is now getting wired the way evolution wired us to interact and hold others' accountability. Now it's if someone has a good experience or a bad experience. It's not that everybody in town knows about it by the end of the week. It's everybody in the country knows about it by the end of the day. It's warmth and competence on steroids turbocharged by digital technology and that's what the story of Brandon and his grandmother was really all about how word travels in a way that we never have dealt with before it totally changes the way we need to operate and form relationships with our customers because again we are making our decisions making our commitments based on what we know about the people the companies and brands and practices that we interact with let me give you another example Here are three well-known brands of chocolate. I'm sure you've heard of all of them, but I wonder how many of you know the history and the background of just one of them, the Hershey Company. How many of you know about the founder of the Hershey Company and how they came about? Very many? In our research, we found that less than 20% actually know the story of Milton Hershey, who started the Hershey Company in 1894 near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. The company grew very rapidly And actually, by 1909, Milton Hershey and his wife, who were unable to have children of their own, decided to gift nearly their entire fortune to a charitable foundation to create an orphanage to provide education and home and college training to underprivileged boys and girls. And for the past 105 or 10 years, this organization has trained, housed, and college-educated 2,000 students every year, the largest organization of its kind. And so every day, actually, the gift from Milton Hershey and the profits of those proceeds from that organization go to support this school. And in their Quaker modesty, they don't really talk about this very much. Most people don't know about it. But when we saw this and talked with the people at Hershey, we had a hypothesis. We said, I'll bet that if more people knew about what you do and have done for over 100 years without asking anything special in return, they would think differently of you. And so we did exactly that. We asked hundreds and hundreds of U.S. adults across the country how they perceived the Hershey Company on warmth, competence, and what their degree of loyalty was. And then we told them this story about the Hershey Foundation and Milton Hershey and his wife, and then asked again. And here's what we found. Not only did we see that perceptions of Hershey changed very significantly, not only were they perceived to be more unfriendly, but frankly, they were also seen to be much more competent And that's, frankly, how our brains work. When we see someone who acts this way towards someone else, we think that they will act toward us in a similar way, even if we never have direct contact with them. A dramatic change in both their warmth perceptions and their competence perceptions. Because our brains perceive these companies and brands as if they were tribes or social groups. And what we see and what we know about their leader and about what the people do impacts how we perceive them. As you might expect, the loyalty went up significantly as well. And this is for a brand on a scale of 1 to 10 that also had pretty strong loyalty to begin with. And so the reality is we do not form loyalty to companies or brands or practices. The way our brains are wired is we form loyalty to people and what we know about those people and what their intentions and abilities suggest about how they will act towards us. Let me share a personal experience. I'm sure you've heard many Starbucks stories, but you haven't heard this one because this is what happened to me back in the summer of 2006. At the time, I was the senior vice president of marketing at Aramark Corporation, a big food service company that provides food service in hospitals and universities and things like that. And at the time, Aramark was a licensee of Starbucks operating 75 Starbucks stores on college campuses around the country. And the problem at the time was that Aramark was about to lose their license because we were not delivering the kind of customer experience that Starbucks expected and was able to deliver in their own stores. And this, of course, would have been a major problem because students on college campuses love their coffee. And so, in a last-ditch effort to preserve the relationship, Starbucks invited a handful of executives from Aramark to travel to Seattle and spend a few days getting dipped in how they delivered the experience that they did, and to hopefully to find that missing ingredient that we weren't delivering. And we expected to hear about how they chose their coffee beans, and they chose the location of their stores, and how they lit them and de- decorated them, and all of that. And we certainly heard a fair bit about it. But the thing that struck us most, the thing that was the missing ingredient for Aramark, was how they recruited managed, and motivated their staff members. They told us about something called the Little Green Apron Book, which, as the name suggests, was a little green book that fits in the pocket of an apron. And inside that book, they talked about five ways of being, things like being welcoming, genuine, considerate, and knowledgeable. And inside that book, there were five cards. On the front of each card was a little description of each of those ways of being, and on the back were just blank lines, And the interesting thing about this was that these are things that they were not just expected to demonstrate to customers. Even more importantly, they were expected to demonstrate to one another. And we were extra surprised as well that this wasn't just an idea that sat on a shelf or in a drawer or what have you. In the back room, they had an apron, and on that apron were little cardboard cup holders that they used as pockets. And in those pockets, they would place those cards every day because five or six times a day, they would catch each other in the act of doing one of these things right whether it's offering a kind word or remembering a guest's name and presenting them to each other and encouraging and celebrating and recognizing when they were doing those little gestures. At the end of the month, they would gather them up and send them to the district office, and then they would be written up into stories, stories that would be shared across the organization, celebrating, encouraging, and recognizing all the ways that they were acting out these five ways of being. And they shared one of these stories with us it was one that really hit home for us. It was about a story on the West Coast about a customer named Pete. Now, Pete was a regular customer, an elderly gentleman that would come in a few times a week, have his coffee a certain way, read the paper in the corner, and then he would head home. This went on for several years. Everyone got to know Pete. And then a few weeks went by, and no one saw Pete. He said, hey, has anyone seen Pete? I think he has a daughter in L.A. Perhaps he's on vacation visiting his daughter. A few more weeks went by, still no Pete, and then one day a young woman came in, and she said, does anyone here know a customer named Pete? They said, sure, we know Pete. Where has he been? Has he been on vacation? She said, no, I'm sorry. Pete is my dad, and I'm sorry to say a few weeks ago he had a heart attack and passed away, and so I'm in town going through his apartment to put his affairs in order, and as I was doing that, I found something that really confused me. In his apartment, I found two big bags, and in those bags... Starbucks cups that said things like, have a nice day, come back soon, hope you feel better. And apparently these meant so much to my dad that he couldn't bear to throw them away. And I just wanted to come down and thank you for the obvious difference you were making in my dad's life. I never knew about it. Of course it begs the question, what caused Pete to keep the cups? It wasn't the location the coffee, the price, or any of those things. It's these simple gestures of warmth and compassion and consideration towards others that have far greater impact than any loyalty program we can ever create. Those little connections make a lasting impact and bring people back and form lifelong relationships. The same kinds of things you heard about from Lululemon yesterday. Another organization without the benefit of any major marketing advertising campaign has grown to over $2 billion in revenue through word of mouth, customer loyalty, and lots of repeat purchase that makes it much easier to find new customers. You don't have to compete on price. They bring new customers to you and you grow more consistently and much more profitably as a result. Not only was it warm and competent, it was making a lasting difference. And that's really what we should be aiming for. Not a great customer experience. Not customer satisfaction. The top of the mountain The thing that is the pinnacle is making a lasting difference in the lives of our team members and of our patients. You get all the other stuff right along with it, the loyalty, the commitment, the growth, the reduced reliance on price, if we simply aim to make a lasting difference in the lives of others. So whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, every day we are all being judged on the basis of our warmth and competence. And despite the remarkable gift we've all been given to accurately perceive the intentions and abilities of others, we are all equally cursed with blinders and don't realize that we are not able to objectively see how we are coming across to others. And as a result, every day, whether we realize it or not, we inadvertently do little things that rub people the wrong way, suggest to them that we're only looking out for ourselves, and in many cases, very unintentionally, give them the impression that we cannot be trusted. Here's another story to tell you how this works in business. Back in December of 2008, when the Great Recession hit, many companies went into survival mode, laying off employees, cutting expenses, doing whatever they could to survive. One such company was a supplier of medical products in the Midwest. Like other companies, they laid off employees, they cut costs, but they also went several steps further to try to preserve as much profitability and shareholder value as they could. Despite that their sales went down by 25% in 2009, they were able to keep profits from going down only 15% by raising the price on some products, lowering service levels, increasing the size of sales rep territories, and actually canceling some unprofitable customer contracts. So as a result, despite the contraction, this being a public company, Wall Street was elated with this. Their stock price actually went up to nearly a pre-recession high. Discipline cost management, shareholder value preservation, they were held out as this great example. Well, unfortunately, the adulation was short-lived because by early 2010, the company's sales had begun to plummet and a new CEO was brought in to get things turned around. And one of the first things he asked is, hey, I can see our sales went down by 25%, but why is it the case then that in addition to that, in the last six months, we've lost over a billion dollars in contracts to our competitors? He wasn't getting the answer he was satisfied with, and so our firm being a specialist since the area was brought in to get to the bottom of the situation. We asked all of their customers who had recently been won, lost, retained, or unsuccessfully bid how they perceived this company on warmth and competence and what had happened and why, as well as the account managers that handled those accounts. And what we found very quickly is that not only did they have a major customer retention problem, they also had a tremendous employee morale problem. And the feedback we got from customers, there's no other way to put it other than to say it was brutal. People saying things like, we did business with this company for over 20 years, and in our time of greatest need, they abandoned us. They raised prices and cut our contract, and we had to go out in the marketplace at the worst possible time and try to find another supplier. Employees said similar things. They were laid off after 10 years by telephone, get them off the payroll as quickly as possible. And so when those employees left... Got that door open, they couldn't get the door shut again. Their best sales reps went over to competitors taking accounts with them. So we brought this news back to the management team. And they were incredulous. They said, Don't they understand? This wasn't personal. This was just business. We're just doing what everyone else was doing. Well, the reality is, there's no such thing as just business. It's all personal. In fact, one customer, the way they put it was, and this was a recently one customer, the best they could say about this company is they do okay for a faceless monolith. That's what they had become, a faceless monolith. you ask the question, how could the management team have not seen this coming? How could they not know? Well, the reality is it's a huge blind spot. So much of what we've been taught and trained in business to get as much as we can, to grow as fast as we can, to profit as much as we can, is sending the message to customers and patients and colleagues that we care more about ourselves and profitability than we do about them. And as a result, it's a more transactional, less loyal environment than ever before. So, if you are serious about building a culture of success that involves lasting patient and team member loyalty, I can boil it down to you into three imperatives. First and foremost, we're going to have to become a lot more self-aware of how our policies, practices, and processes are perceived from a warmth and competence standpoint. It turns out that a lot of things that we've done for decades send the message that we don't care And that word travels much further and faster than ever before. A good experience, a bad experience, it's all over now thanks to this digital technology. And so we've got to evaluate ourselves and hold ourselves to a higher standard of transparency and accountability, because whether we like it or not, that's the standard we're going to be held to. Once we've got that feedback, we've got to be willing to make significant changes. We can't expect to keep doing the same things we've always done and have results be different. Many organizations are so set in their ways, they've done it a certain way for so long, they can't fathom doing it differently. And not until they're in really, really difficult pain do they become motivated to change. But if you can take what you've learned about how you're perceived and change before you're in dire straits, you'll be much better off. And then at the root of it, frankly, is we've got to look at our priorities. And if our focus is on growing as fast as we can, becoming as profitable as fast as we can, Well, the fact is, that is not an aspiration that patients or team members actually find very inspiring, particularly if it's done at their expense. And we're not suggesting that practices shouldn't grow or that shareholders shouldn't get value. Of course they should, but we need to do it in a way that balances that priority with the best interest of our customers and employees as well if we're going to be able to sustain it. That's the difference, balancing those priorities and not trading one off towards the other. So you may ask, this all sounds great, but can it really happen in the real world? Can you give me any examples? Absolutely, I can give you lots. Here's one that may sound familiar. When the recession hit in 2008, Domino's Pizza was actually already in trouble. They'd had two consecutive years of negative same-store sales growth, and it was clear that their pizza had fallen behind in terms of quality. And they knew that they were under increased competition from the Pizza Huts and Papa John's of the world. But frankly, the supermarket was full of frozen pizza that was pretty good as well. And so they had a really, really tough time. People cut back on their discretionary spending. Domino's and their franchisees were very hard hit. And so it caused them to have to do some internal soul-searching. They sat down with customers and asked them how they felt about Domino's. And again, the feedback was brutal. They said things like, your pizza tastes like cardboard and is totally devoid of flavor. But what hurt most? What hurt most? Their customers said it was clear that the people at Damos really didn't care. They didn't provide a very good product. They didn't provide a very good service. And they'd have a hard time ever trusting them again. So this was difficult. The management team set about rebuilding their pizza to have a change of recipe, but they also, more importantly, set out to have a change of heart. They spent nearly two years developing an entirely new recipe from scratch, testing it backwards and forwards, make sure the customers were preferred over their previous and other alternatives. But they were still left with this nagging question. We can't just come out and say new and improved pizza. Who will believe us? How are we going to overcome the distrust and contempt that customers feel toward us? It was at that time that the folks at Domino's Pizza became inspired to do something totally unthinkable from a business standpoint, but totally natural from a human standpoint. In the fall of 2009, their CEO, Patrick Doyle, went on national television during the NFL playoffs and apologized. He said, we lost our way. I'm sorry, we haven't delivered what we should be delivering to you. But we've had a change of heart. They even shared clips from the focus groups and showed photographs of their failures and said, we are going to hold ourselves to a higher standard and we'd like for you to give us another try. And what did Americans do? Well, across the country, Americans did give them another try. And in the first few months of 2010, Domino's pizza sales growth not only grew by 10%, but every year since, Domino's revenue has grown by 10% per year ever since. No cost cuts, no layoffs, a focus on what the best interest of the customer was and holding themselves accountable and, frankly, putting a human face on that company, their CEO, They're development chefs. You watch their communication, you'll often see lots more about their people than their pizza. And oh, by the way, along the way, all that shareholders have gotten in return for this focus on taking care of customers first is a 1,000% increase in the stock price from under $10 to over $100 since 2009. And the reality is if we put the best interest of our customers and our team members first, shareholders get far more back in return. It's our nature of reciprocation as humans. That loyalty and reciprocation is what we are wired to respond to. We get far more in return if we focus on maximizing shareholder and owner value by putting the best interests of our customers and our team members first. Here's another example that you may not have heard of. American Standard. This company was founded in 1875 as the American Sanitary Manufacturing Company. And for the last 140 years, has been a fixture in American households as a maker of bathroom and household fixtures. And they actually played a very significant role in the development of indoor plumbing and healthy sanitation in North America. But by January of 2012, when Jay Gould joined the company as CEO, the company was literally in the toilet. In the most recent quarter, they had lost $20 million, and the controller came to Jay and said, I'm not sure we have enough cash to make it through the year. So things were in dire straits financially. But Jay could tell that things were in dire straits with his team as well. He brought in a company known for employee engagement surveys, Denison, and conducted a company-wide survey to ask how employees felt about the company. And they fell in the bottom quartile of all the companies Denison had ever surveyed. And one of the things that came out of it, not only were employees dissatisfied because frankly his predecessor had a reputation for restructuring three times a year and downsizing two times a year. So it was really a culture of fear. But honestly, they felt a lack of purpose. They could not really see how their work connected to anything more important in the world. And Jay set out to change that. And as he dug into it, he learned that over two billion people on planet earth do not have access to clean water and healthy sanitation. And so they set out to do something about that. It was an area they had some expertise in. And so he sent his top engineers to Bangladesh, one of the world's most impoverished nations, to look at sanitation practices and processes. And what they found is that for a large portion of the population, all they have access to is what they call these open pit latrines, which is basically a hole in the ground with cement walls and a hole in the top. And the problem with this is that all kinds of diseases and insects and airborne pathogens are passed in and out of these retreats, causing over a million people to die each year from these preventable diseases. And so American Standard set out to do something about that. Rather than trying to change the way the culture was in that, or that country, they said, how do we work within it? And what their engineers developed, actually, was a simple thing, this little plastic device that could be molded into the top of those open pit latrines and have a little flapper there. And by putting this in, it would prevent insects and airborne pathogens from passing in and out. And they found a way to manufacture this for just $1.50 an item. And right off the bat, they produced 150 or 500,000 of them at $1.50 a piece and donated them to Bangladesh immediately and through the aid organization started to get these installed across Bangladesh but they didn't stop there. In addition, they decided that for every toilet that they sold, they would donate another one of these safe toilet devices to Bangladesh and encourage their employees and their customers to be a car- part of this as well. They called it flush for good. And in the first year, another one million of these devices were sold and distributed and donated in Bangladesh. Employee engagement rocketed. Fastest turnaround Denison had ever seen. From 2012 to 2013, they went from the bottom quartile to the top quartile. In addition, customers supported them as well. Over 14% growth in 2014, 10% growth in 2013. And oh, by the way, all the shareholders got was a seven-fold increase in profit along the way. And in a very different way, American Standard put the best interest of customers in their community, demonstrated warmth towards someone other than themselves, and in return, was rewarded very generously as a result. These are business examples. You may wonder, can this happen in the medical practice? Absolutely. It was back in 1998 when Dr. Charles Volk decided to open the Dakota Eye Surgery Center in Bismarck, North Dakota, He had worked as an eye surgeon in a hospital, but wanted to provide an experience that was more comforting and more neighborly than what was available in the hospital. So he set out to form this eye surgery center. But after the first few months, he knew he needed to make a change. He knew he needed to deliver care with more heart. He'd hired a very capable administrator, but who was very cold and kind of regimented with the staff and with patients. And then he remembered Mary Radke, his old friend from his hometown, Mary was running a surgical center 75 miles away and was having a great reputation for the care she was delivering the team that she had built. And so he gave Mary a call and said, would you consider coming down and helping us run our eye surgery center? And despite that Mary would have to commute 75 miles each day, she said absolutely. She saw an opportunity to deliver the kind of care that she really believed in. And as she said about hiring staff for the center, She was not so focused on their prior experience in surgery centers. She was more concerned with how much does this person care about people and patients. In addition, they changed the focus from being about the procedure to being about how the patient would perceive the experience. They hired dedicated greeters that when patients and their families came in to the practice, they would be greeted and welcomed, and when they take them through an explanation of the procedure, families would then be brought into an observing room where they could see the procedure going on, to provide with cookies and all kinds of other things. And then, within 24 hours, every patient would get a phone call from the physician and a handwritten note wishing them well and encouraging them a speedy recovery. What did happen in return? Well, as a result, Dakota Eye Surgery Center has a 98.9% of their customers give them an outstanding rating for satisfaction. Their practice has nearly tripled in size since 1998 and nearly 50% of their patients come through referrals from other patients. They've won all kinds of awards in their little corner of paradise in Bismarck, North Dakota. So hopefully this story and the others I've shared with you, the moral is entirely clear that in a world where our reputation can be won or lost in a single day with a click of a mouse, perhaps our ability to demonstrate warmth and competence to others is our greatest asset, And it only makes sense in any human endeavor, personal, professional, or commercial. We have always replied and depended on the loyalty, commitment, and support of others. And so I challenge you, don't allow your practice to become just another faceless monolith in your community. Put a human face on that and show them what you care about. Evaluate your practices and think about how you can demonstrate warmth in addition to all the competence that you have. And if you do that, not only will you be able to build the culture of success that you want, not only will you be a 10, not only will you get the growth and profitability and stability that you're looking for, but you also have the opportunity to make a lasting difference in the lives of your team members and your patients. And there's no greater accomplishment than that. I hope this is helpful. Thank you very much.